Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Robin Efren, Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. We will discuss her article, Putting the Notice Back into Pleading, which will be published in the Cardozo Law Review. So welcome to the show, Robin. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, and uh, this is a really fun, interesting, and I think provocative civil procedure paper, which isn't always a, a set of words that that go together necessarily. Um, but to, to tee up what makes this paper so interesting for listeners who may not be c- civil procedure aficionados, like like you in particular and me to a somewhat lesser degree, I, I wonder if you could start by by just explaining to listeners exactly what pleading is. Like when we talk about pleading, what do we mean? So pleading is how we start off a lawsuit because uh, as my civil procedure professor always said, you can't just run into court and say, bad things are happening. You have to say, here's what went wrong and here's why I am entitled to relief as a matter of law. And so that thing that you do is called pleading and throughout legal history, you know, particularly Anglo-American legal history, there has been a question of what should pleading be? You know, what form should it take? What should the standard be for whether you have said enough every once in a while, whether you have said too much? But that's what pleading is. Mm-hmm. Well, so the sort of 20th century and maybe even current kind of formulation of how we describe pleading is what's known as notice pleading. So what exactly is notice pleading? And what does it require a plaintiff to do or to plead in order to bring an action and to survive a motion to dismiss? So notice pleading is the idea that the sufficiency of a complaint, in other words, whether it's enough for the lawsuit to go forward, is whether it conveys enough notice to the defendant about the legal and factual claims Uh, that the plaintiff is making. So in other words, does it communicate enough information to the defendant so that the defendant can start preparing to mount a defense? Um, And, you know, there's other things that go into pleading as well that theoretically connect to that notice idea. So we don't talk about them very much. But for example, where is the lawsuit happening? And when do you have to show up, right? Those are some pieces of basic information that um, we like to have conveyed in a pleading. Now, part of what I was investigating in this article is what is notice pleading, right? This is a name that I certainly grew up with as a law student and a scholar, and it's uh, a term that we've all been very comfortable with, right? This idea, well, what is notice pleading? That's the standard for pleading that we've had in the second half of the 20th century. And then there is this question about whether notice pleading has gone away in the last 10 or so years. Uh, But I really started to question, do we know what notice pleading is? Like, where did that name come from? How long have we been using it? And what do people really mean when they talk about notice pleading? So part of what I'm talking about in this article is that what is given as the standard definition of notice pleading isn't necessarily wrong, but I do think that it is um, a little bit more of a label or almost an empty vessel than it is an actual concept, right? There's plenty of other concepts in the law that you know might be deeply contested or difficult, but I think have a little bit more content to them than notice pleading. Uh, so that's sort of where I was going with this. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe a way of understanding that then is to kind of ask why courts adopted notice pleading in the first place or what came to be known as notice pleading. Like what kind of pleadings preceded notice pleading and what problems, if any, was notice pleading intended to solve? So going back into the history, there were several different pleading regimes that existed in the 19th and the early 20th century. So I won't kind of divert by getting into the details of the different ones because they they were not uniform. But the thing that they all had in common was that they were very complicated and quite arcane. And it was very easy to sort of fall into these traps where if you didn't kind of conform to these very technical niceties, then your whole lawsuit would die. And so the problem that notice pleading, or I should say modern federal pleading was meant to solve, was this idea that we should just let people start their lawsuits in you know, almost what we might think of now as a more natural language way of expressing what went wrong, right? Tell me what you think happened and why you think you have a legal claim for relief, right? So it was meant to liberalize pleading, to open up pleading. Um, and the, the two goals, I, I want to be clear that the two goals are kind of conflated, um, but I think are distinct, right? The idea of opening up pleading was the idea that not enough meritorious claims were getting into court, right? That we weren't letting enough people in and that people who had genuine disputes with a legal claim for relief weren't getting access to courts. The second problem was that the hyper-technicality of pleading was slowing things down and was just sort of generally unfair, right? And you can see why they're very related and why people tend to kind of talk about them in one breath, but they're not actually the same thing, right? So you could be concerned about getting rid of the hyper-technicalities of pleading, but still want to rein in the number of lawsuits that make it to the courthouse door. It's like, no, we still want to be very, very skeptical about how many lawsuits go forward because they are very time consuming and expensive. Um, So those are two different things, but that was what pleading was meant to solve. So, you know, this kind of developed in the first third of the 20th century, right? A lot of, uh, procedural reforms were happening at that same time. And it's part of this much larger package of procedural reforms that culminated in the federal rules of civil procedure, which came into effect in 1938. A big one was a new pleading standard. Now, interestingly, right, and this is part of what I, I don't know if uncovered is the right word, because it's not like this was hidden. It's just not a lot of people talked about this people didn't call it notice pleading at the time. So the term notice pleading had been used in some scholarly circles in the first part of the 20th century. But particularly Charles Clark, who was one of the drafters of the federal rules, he doesn't call it notice pleading. That's not the words that are used in Rule 8, which is the pleading standard that was enshrined in the federal rules. And that term doesn't really catch on in any meaningful way until the 40s, where you see like a little bit of usage. And then in Conley versus Gibson, which is this landmark pleading case in 1957, that's really when you see that's like the the starting bell of a big use of notice pleading. But, you know, I think it's um, 
a little bit mistaken to say what was notice pleading meant to solve, right? I think the question is, what was a modernized pleading standard meant to solve? And then how did that pleading standard come to be known as notice pleading and associated with notice pleading? Um, and again, I think that because that label became so effective and so rote um, in the latter part of the 20th century, a lot of people, certainly I did, just assumed that that's what it was. Like, oh, in 1938, we decided to adopt notice pleading. But I don't think that that is necessarily true. And I think that there was you know, some disagreement as to what notice pleading was or would be at the, the time of the drafting and adoption of the rules and then what it eventually became. So maybe you could talk then a little bit about Conley v. Gibson and the standard that it adopted. In other words, sort of how exactly did the Supreme Court formulate the requirements for a sufficient pleading in Conley? And if you could, like maybe you could even describe like what the sort of canonical sufficient pleading <laughs> would include under the Conley standard as it was understood at the time and until recently. Yeah, sure. So Conley v. Gibson was actually a civil rights case from 1957. And it really married two things that had been kind of churning in pleading jurisprudence up until 1957. So one was this question of factual sufficiency, right? Which is, you know, there's a legal sufficiency question with pleading. Like, have you actually identified a law under which you're entitled to relief. And that's a whole other question that's usually dealt with in substantive areas of law. And then there's this factual question, which is, okay, you seem to think that something has gone wrong. You've identified the proper legal regime under which you would be entitled to relief. But then the question remains, have you connected enough of what has gone wrong to you and more importantly to the defendant? Right. So you can say, here are the facts that I believe would show that the defendant has wronged me and I am entitled to relief under the law. So that's the question of factual sufficiency. And then there was this other idea of whether or not a pleading conveyed information to the defendant about what was going on in the lawsuit. Right. And that's the idea of notice and notice pleading. So again, to sort of go back to what I was talking about earlier, where people tend to sort of talk about the two problems of older pleading regimes and conflate them and talk about them as if they were one problem, and I really think they're distinct. Here again, you see that those are not exactly the same idea. So the question of whether or not the plaintiff has facts that would show enough, right, if proven to, that they're entitled to relief is not the same question of whether or not the plaintiff has been able to communicate to the defendant enough of what's going on so that the defendant can start to mount a defense. So, you know, one example of where those things diverge is that often the plaintiff is in possession of a lot less information than the defendant. So the plaintiff might not need to convey a whole lot of information to the defendant in order to put the defendant on notice. But we still might want this factual sufficiency bar, right? It might be that even though the defendant knows what's going on at a certain level, that we want the plaintiff to be able to make a more public declaration you know, to the court that they, in fact, are 
in control of enough information that shows something, right? So those are two different things. And courts had been kind of bouncing the two of those ideas around under rule eight in the decisions prior to Conley, right? So you get to Conley and in Conley, the court uses this language that we call the no set of facts language. And so there the Supreme Court said, look, this pleading standard, rule eight, is not around to demand that the plaintiff list lengthy and detailed statements of fact in order to gain access to the courts. That was not the purpose of Rule 8. The purpose of Rule 8 was to move away from those requirements of, you know, having a ton of facts and also having a ton of, you know, procedural technicalities. And so then the court says, well, what should that factual bar be? And what they say is, look, as long as you look at the pleadings and can say, well, there's no set of facts under which the plaintiff has pleaded that they're entitled to relief, then the lawsuit should go forward, right? So in other words, unless that complaint is so completely devoid of any set of facts sort of pleaded or imagined that would entitle them to relief, then the lawsuit should go forward and the plaintiff is entitled to develop their factual record through discovery and through sort of additional pretrial practice. And then that theoretically is supposed to culminate in a trial. So that was the factual sufficiency part, right? The notice pleading part then also gets brought up in Conley, right? And the court says, and, you know, how do we know what factual sufficiency is? Well, one of the ways is, you know, would it give the defendant notice of the claims and facts brought against him, right? So the court kind of brings together these two things. You know, in Conley, the court is not at all clear that notice and factual sufficiency might be two different things, right? And so, you know, notice is just sort of used as this um, shorthand for what factual sufficiency would be. And that language was available because it had been kind of percolating up through first academic scholarship in the teens and 20s and 30s, and then through kind of a handful of decisions in the 40s. Um, what's interesting is that some of those decisions, first in the lower court, uh, lower courts and then in Conley itself, is that by the time you get to Conley, courts are already talking about notice pleading as if it's this well-established concept that everyone is using and talking about. But, you know, when I went back and read all of the published decisions, it was very few. Like, it's this really strange story where people just started talking about notice pleading as if it were a thing in the 1950s. And in fact, right, that was really kind of jump-started in the 50s. It was definitely there. It was definitely floating around. Um, but you go from this very sort of like mattering use where courts would sort of use it as a shorthand and, and talk about it a little bit to all of a sudden like, well, that's what this is. Rule eight, that's notice pleading. Notice pleading is no set of facts. And then you're off to the races where the no set of facts language from Conley becomes more or less synonymous with um, notice pleading. So, so my sense is that the post-Conley controversies 
over pleading standards. We're primarily focused on the sufficiency of the facts in a complaint and whether those were sufficient to survive a motion to dismiss. And like I guess as I understand it, initially we sort of had like Leatherman and Sverkovitz sort of pushing toward liberality in pleading standards. But then more recently, as you alluded to earlier, in Twombly and Iqbal, we have the Supreme Court sort of pushing back and expecting more factual pleading uh, for the sufficiency bar to be met. I wonder if you could just briefly reflect on that controversy and sort of what values it implicates, because I, I think it's a really interesting back and forth, and I want to distinguish it, as you already have, from the concept of notice. And, and I think a better understanding of what's really at stake might be helpful for listeners. Yeah, so that debate is really about... Um, commentators and judges and litigators who are on one side very committed to access to justice and court access, which to them in the pleading context translated into lowest possible pleading standard, right? That was that was sort of the goal, which was have the least possible number of barriers to the courthouse door. And so any inkling that something at the pleading stage would be a barrier to a plaintiff bringing a meritorious or even a possibly meritorious case was seen as very detrimental to the overall cause of court access. And of course, it was seen as detrimental to like any given plaintiff who might have a claim that, you know, otherwise they would be entitled to relief, but they just can't kind of um, marshal enough facts or evidence at the pleading stage. On the other hand, you had people who were very concerned and committed to the idea that litigation is very expensive to all parties involved, that the court system is a public system that is not free, right? We spend a lot of money running our federal and state courts, and that once cases get in the courthouse door, then the costs really ramp up, right? And then the concern there was that if you had the lowest possible pleading standard, that plaintiffs would just sort of come in with you know, a bare shred of a whisper of something that might have gone wrong. Now they've gotten a toehold in the court system. They have access to all sorts of pretrial procedures that include mainly discovery. And the concern was either that meritorious but low value cases would just be so resource intensive as to essentially be not worth it. Or sort of more commonly, this idea that plaintiffs could exact such high pretrial costs against defendants that the defendants would sooner settle the case than go through pretrial litigation. So certainly in Twombly, you see that cost, right? That resource argument is huge, right? Twombly is the major case that ended notice pleading, supposedly, and ushered in plausibility pleading. It was a big antitrust class action, right? And the court's concern there, whether they were right about this or not, right? The concern was that discovery in this massive antitrust action was going to be so overwhelmingly expensive that the defendants would just settle and we would never really know whether the plaintiffs actually had any meat on the bones of their uh, complaints, right? So that's what's uh, at stake there is like court access versus resources and efficiency 
and uh, you know what are sometimes known as strike suits or kind of leveraging defendants into settling cases that would not otherwise be settled. Hmm. Mm. Well, and so you you also sort of distinguish to some degree, like we often refer to the Twombi Iqbal, Iqbal pair as like Twickball, as it were, as if they're kind of the same thing. But I thought it was interesting that you sort of break the two out to a certain degree and point at differences between the two cases. So I wonder if you could talk about what those differences are and the sort of objections that people have made to this perceived shift from the very low bar that was understood to be the case under Conley to these arguably somewhat higher bar uh, for factual sufficiency pleading uh, under Twombly and Iqbal. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I should just start off by saying I am definitely not the first person to treat the cases differently and look at them separately. But I will talk about the very specific way in which I treated them separately in this paper, which is to say, you know, I had given this kind of long history of why I think notice pleading had been kind of an empty vessel and that the word notice was just associated with minimalism, right? It had become a synonym not for actually giving notice to the defendant, but instead it had become a synonym for lowest possible bar to federal court entry. And so the way that I treat Twombly and Iqbal differently is that when I look at Twombly, there the court is still using notice pleading language. And so the shift in Twombly is that instead of the no set of facts language, right, the court is very explicit. They say we are you know, getting rid of no set of facts. Instead, the plaintiff has to bring forth enough facts to show that they are plausibly entitled to relief, right? And what plausibly means, that's a whole other can of worms. I and like every other civil procedure scholar has written on that elsewhere. Um, but importantly, notice pleading is or gives real cover to the court here. Because it allows Justice Souter, who's the author of Twombly, to say, I'm not making a big revolution here. I'm not doing any sort of change to Rule 8 or change to the standard. I'm just telling you what notice pleading really is. And so remember, I was talking before about how in Conley, the no set of facts language and the notice idea were just kind of mashed together, right? And there wasn't a lot of distinction about why you were talking about notice versus why you were talking about no set of facts. And that was kind of picked up by the courts over the years. And so Justice Souter, like very cleverly, realizes that notice pleading is the key to continuity with the past, right? That we're not reimagining pleading, that this is just completely consonant with all of the precedent and law that has come before. And so, you know, he can have it both ways. He can he can say, like, the old standard, the no set of facts standard, that was not a good one. It wasn't working. It's bad for all sorts of reasons. Here's why we're retiring it in favor of plausibility. And then at the same time say, but this is what it always was. It was always about notice and notice pleading, even though, as I argue, no one actually made a meaningful investigation about what real notice pleading would be. So that's Twombly. Then you get to Iqbal, which comes a couple years later, and that's basically a case that sort of solidified and refined plausibility pleading. It answered a few questions like, yes, this applies to everything and not just antitrust cases. Um, and there are some other differences as well. 
But for me, a key difference is that there's no mention of notice at all in the majority opinion in Iqbal. It's just gone, right? So Twombly, we see notice pleading used as this key to continuity with the past and the establishment of plausibility pleading. Well, once you have plausibility pleading, now the court can just go forward with this and it's only plausibility pleading. The only person to talk about notice pleading in Iqbal is Justice Souter, who writes a, dis- a dissent, right? And, and he says, no, no, this isn't what I meant. It, I meant it to be so much narrower than that. And he uses notice pleading to at least try to explain why he thinks that, you know, the cat got out of the bag with Twombly, and this is not what he meant at all for that to happen. Now, interestingly, after Twombly and Iqbal, lower courts didn't just stop using the moniker notice pleading. It's gone way down. Um, And a lot of the times that you see it used is by courts explaining that's not what we do anymore. But some courts still use it, right? Some courts are still kind of in the Twombly world of here's what notice pleading means now. And notice pleading now means plausibility pleading as opposed to before when notice pleading meant no set of facts under Conley. Well, so... Do you think that in a way, like disaggregating or more explicitly distinguishing between this kind of historically dominant concept of factual sufficiency in pleading as compared to notice and the due process values associated with notice in pleading might produce a sort of clearer or maybe even kind of different set of principles for thinking about the relationship that we're we're troubled with here or the way that courts ought to think about the sufficiency the sufficiency of a pleading um i mean i think the sufficiency of the pleading so it you know it kind of goes back to um what it meant in the first place like what notice pleading meant in the first place, and if we ever really defined it, right? So I guess the question is a little bit hard to answer because part of what I'm arguing in the article was that notice pleading was sort of a germ of an idea that got some sort of real substantive play in the 20s and 30s, and then kind of quickly just became a synonym for something else. Um, And, you know, you see courts from time to time saying like, well, what is pleading? It has to give notice to the defendant. But it was so rare that a real investigation of that question ever happened, right? Either it just collapsed right back into factual sufficiency, right? You know, the idea that, well, what is going to give notice to the defendant? It'll be whatever is factually sufficient. But then that becomes circular, right? Because then it's like, what is factual sufficient? It's what gives notice to Uh, the defendant, right? So that's not helpful. Um, And so, you know, I do sort of offer a little bit of um, a a peek into what I think notice pleading might have looked like if notice pleading hadn't just become a synonym for, uh, you know, bare and minimal and simple and all of these other diminutive terms that you always see appended to notice pleading. Um, And, you know, the so the things that I suggest, you know, both sort of historically what it might have looked like, and then I have this very tentative um, discussion of like, okay, well, maybe we could try to sort of like revive a little bit of notice pleading, even within the plausibility regime, um, is by saying, what does it mean to really communicate things to 
the defendant? And is there a way to sort of tease out the general abstract third party question of factual sufficiency from the more intersubjective question of what does the defendant know and what does the defendant need to know in order to start preparing a defense, right? And that, that's where I think it's key, right? I think that um, the best thing that we can do is to look at, uh, look at these things and say, is there a way in which we can say that for some cases and some defendants that they don't need as much information communicated to them as other cases and other defendants. So like one of the sticking points after Twombly and Iqbal has been this real concern that there are certain classes of cases that are going to be extremely um, problematic for plaintiffs. So things like employment discrimination cases or conspiracy cases, you know, again, like antitrust types of claims, where the whole idea is that the defendant has been doing something kind of nefarious and bad, but not in a way that is entirely visible to the plaintiff, right? The plaintiff sort of has a general sense and a really good hunch that something has gone wrong and that thing that has gone wrong is unlawful, right? So for example, discrimination on the basis of race. But they don't have sort of that slam dunk smoking gun proof. Um, and so that those are the kind of parties that are sort of like really hurt and squeezed by Trombley and Iqbal. And so my idea is that you could say those are the sorts of cases where when what the plaintiff is alleging is a set of facts that are, you know, the whole allegation is that they are in the defendant's control, right? Because some other cases, part of what the plaintiff is alleging are things that the defendant might not have control over, right? So maybe in a products liability case where the factual situation is very complex, you know, there are certain defendants who don't know everything that they need to know and like might actually need some more facts. So here you could say, these are cases where notice pleading is helpful. What does the defendant need to know about what the plaintiff is alleging in order to mount their defense? Right? And so for me to say, well, what the defendant needs to know is what the defendant already knows or doesn't know, you know, that's not notice pleading. That's something else. And if we want that something else to be there, you know, that's a different argument. If what we're saying is that we just want to have like a real clampdown on those sorts of conspiracy or civil rights cases where plaintiffs don't always come armed with a lot of proof. No, that's not a position that I am super fond of because I am a lefty liberal and I like the idea of open court access, but that's a policy decision that we have to make, right? But to call that notice pleading, I think is just fictional, right? Like you're not putting the defendant on any better or worse notice by requiring the plaintiff to allege information that is allegedly in the defendant's possession or in the defendant's knowledge. So that, that's kind of where I see it playing out. Yeah. Yeah. So in closing, Robin, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what a pleading regime would look like if we really started taking the concept of notice more seriously. Because I like this observation that it's like, in many cases, the defendant does know 
what the nature of the complaint is, even if the plaintiff hasn't pleaded that much in the way of facts. And I wonder if potentially it might result in something similar to the sort of regime that uh, Justice Stevens actually described in Twombly with like sort of certain kinds of limited discovery to mitigate the policy concerns while recognizing that the underlying complaint seems to state something that you know, if if true, would would justify relief? Yeah. So I, I have this um, idea sketched out, you know, very very lightly that the way forward is to focus on three distinct principles, um, and and that would help us sort of construct a regime that would be a true notice regime. So the first one is what I call the specification of the pleading audience. And that's kind of what I was talking uh, to you about in the last answer, right? The idea that if we're really concerned about notice, then we need to really think about what is being communicated to the defendant and really separate that idea out from the question of whether or not the plaintiff has enough facts that we think it is okay for that plaintiff to go forward, because those are two separate questions. Um, the second principle would be, for me, recognizing what I think is the centrality of legal sufficiency. Because one of the things that I think happened was that when we were in the Conley regime, in which I sort of personally think it was a strategic error for the plaintiff's bar and the sort of general court access community to kind of cling to the lowest possible pleading standard, this no set of facts standard is, you know, like you know, any deviation from that is just going to be, you know, a disaster in the end of court access. I think that that just sort of really paved the way for what I see as, you know, some straw men arguments that came up in Twombly and in some of the other lower court cases that were kind of paving the way for what happened in, in Twombly. And so what happened was that when we set the bar so low for factual sufficiency, for so many years, I think we deprived ourselves of the opportunity to talk meaningfully about a factual sufficiency standard that might make sense. And also in doing so, losing sight of the centrality of legal sufficiency, right? Because going back all the way to the beginning of the the interview here, a big part of pleading is making sure that somebody has the um, not just the facts to show that something is wrong, but that the law is on their side, right? That there is some law that has been violated and under which they are entitled to relief. And so I think that one of the things that notice pleading can do is reorient things towards legal sufficiency. And again, that plays into the idea of notice because often when it comes to facts, we are, or we might be less concerned about factually what the defendant knows or doesn't know, and more concerned about whether the defendant understands the connection between what the plaintiff is alleging and the underlying law, right? And so I think that it's not that legal sufficiency has been ignored entirely, right? There are, you know, just reams of motion to dismiss decisions that are entirely based on legal sufficiency. The problem is those aren't thought of as procedural decisions, right? Certainly from a law student's perspective, that's not what you're reading in your civil procedure class. That's what you're reading in your torts class or your contracts class or your securities 
regulation class or, you know, wherever else you're reading these cases. And I think that the effect of that has been to just sort of assume at some strange level that legal insufficiency or legal sufficiency isn't doing any work in pleading and case screening. But I think it is doing a lot of work, right? So when I talk about returning to the centrality of legal sufficiency, right, I'm not sort of asking courts to do work that they're not already doing. I think that they do that work all the time. What I'm asking is to sort of recenter legal sufficiency as one of the more important questions and functions of a pleading regime. And right, so if we see lots of motions to dismiss and courts are routinely like really engaging at a very meaningful and critical level on the questions of whether or not the particular facts entitle the plaintiff to relief, like I think that should be a success, right? And I think that it does tie back into the notice idea because that really is giving the defendant more of a clue of what is this lawsuit going to be about, right? Not just factually, but, you know, what what are the legal claims that we're going to be litigating here? And then the final uh, point about what's going on is sort of addressing informational asymmetries, which again, it, you know, it ties back to what I was talking about before in a previous answer, which is to say, notice pleading should be evaluated based on not just what we expect the plaintiff to know. That's where it is right now. It's all about the plaintiff. It's what does the plaintiff know and what can we expect the plaintiff to know? But if we think about notice pleading as being directed at another party and not just sort of directed at the world, then we also consider what the defendant knows, right? And when we do that, not only do we have that first principle where we're talking about the pleading audience, But I think we can have a much more meaningful discussion about informational asymmetries, right? That notice pleading might look different in a situation where the plaintiff has a lot of facts and the defendant doesn't, right? In those situations, then maybe it is reasonable and important to expect the plaintiff to disclose a lot of factual allegations because the defendant really needs that to prepare. But in other types of cases where defendants are largely in control of the information and the plaintiff isn't, then that balance shifts, right? So I think that notice pleading, if it had ever been sort of properly thought through and and possibly executed, would have been like a much more dynamic and flexible standard. And I think it was, it might have been one where we wouldn't have seen, you know, this retrenchment into the various sort of you know, for lack of a better word, liberal and conservative corners that the bench and bar kind of found themselves by the end of the Conley era. So that that's kind of what I would look at going forward. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Robin. This is a really fascinating and rich investigation of pleading standards and sort of how they work conceptually. And I anticipate we're going to be hearing more from you on this subject in the near future. Yeah, if I could just say sort of one last word, um, because uh, something that didn't come up in the interview at all, but I I think is also important, is that I have a whole other argument that runs through this article. It's it's definitely, you know, like the B story, um, but is elevated to the A story in my other scholarship, which is that I don't think it was particularly good for notice either what happened, right? I think that when we tied notice 
to this idea of like the lowest common denominator and insisted that notice was essentially a synonym for bare and simple and minimal, that that contributed to a whole other procedural story that was taking place over the second half of the 20th century, where notice itself, and this is completely outside of pleading, this is, you know, the idea of service of process or notice in class actions, all those other things, that notice has not gotten as much attention as it should and it might. And so I, I sort of blame Conley for that development as well. And so, you know, stay tuned for the notice side of, of things and not just the pleading side of things. It'll be it'll be the sequel to this episode. Judge.